0: Let us look into the Word of God this morning. We are in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Book of Jonah, minor prophets. Let's consider what God has to say here in the prophets. And uh, the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets here. going to look today at chapter 1. Chapter 1, I've entitled the sermon, Running from God's Will. Running from God's Will. I want to read to you chapters uh, 1 through 16. Verse 17 is really part of chapter 2. It's that way in the Hebrew Bible. For some reason, in our English Bibles, it got included in chapter 1. So, 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. "'The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, "'and there was a great storm on the sea "'that the ship was about to break up. "'Then the sailors became afraid, "'and every man cried to his God, "'and they threw the cargo which was in the ship "'into the sea to lighten it for them. "'But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. "'So the captain approached him and said, "'How is it that you are sleeping? "'Get up, call on your God. "'Perhaps your God will be concerned about us "'so that we will not perish.' Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the man became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me the great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land. but They could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. O Lord, as we embark upon this book for the next few weeks, I pray that you would Take us back to that time. Help us to understand the the context, what's going on in, in the nation of Israel and how your compassion is being shown, not just to them, but to the Gentiles. I pray that we might see this as a glimpse of how you might bring in all peoples, how you might seek to save through Christ different tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. I pray that this would give us a desire for the lost, even people that we don't always want to see saved, but we should. I pray, Lord, that we would seek to do your will and never be disobedient, never run from you. And, and when we are, because we will at times, you will show us the same compassion and grace that you showed to Jonah and coming to get him and bring him back. Thank you for this book, Lord. Open our eyes to its truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as believers, we often run from God. We're disobedient. We try to hide from God. We think our sins can be hidden. We think that somehow we can do things and God's not there to see us. We know that he's everywhere, but at the same time, we do things in the dark of night. We do things in the privacy of our own homes. We think things in our mind, thinking that somehow God doesn't see those things. And sometimes believers will just up and run from the Lord and decide that they're going to take a path of rebellion and backsliding, not caring what will happen, what will come about. Well that really is Jonah's story. Uh, Jonah is a prophet of God. In about the 8th century BC, God has appointed him for a task of given him words to say and he shows to be disobedient. He, he shows himself to be running from God's will. Much like people today, he has decided to go his own way and not the way that God has set before him and specifically told him to go. Jonah is a prophet of the northern kingdom. He's a, a prophet uh, of the people of Israel. God had separated the kingdom after Solomon into the north and the south. The south had the temple in Jerusalem, and usually, usually, the more holy kings, if there was a holy king. But the north would often rebel and go into paganism, and God called prophet after prophet, pointing the Jews back to the law of God, back to the Mosaic Covenant, back to showing them how to live holy lives before the Lord. If they're going to call themselves God's people, They need to be reminded of this. And that's what we see prophets do over and over since uh, judges, really all the way to the end of the Old Testament. But in Jonah, we have a special case. In Jonah, we see not just being called back to love the Lord, but really God's compassion. God's compassion and grace for those that he didn't give the Mosaic Covenant to. God's compassion and grace to Gentiles, to people who are completely set against God, completely oblivious. To the one true God, worshiping their own idols, and yet God sends a prophet to them. So, if you really wanted to have a theme for the whole book, I think the theme is the great compassion of God. The great compassion of God is a a short, succinct theme for the book of Jonah. And as we get into chapter one today, I want us to see how that compassion is is displayed, even when one of his own prophets disobeys, runs away from God. God still shows compassion. God still brings him back. God still Disciplines him so that he will turn and obey God's will. Some of us that's that's gonna happen at times. We are going to disobey. The question is not if, but when it happens, how soon will we come back and start obeying God's will again? If we're Christians, we should do that quickly. We should want to do that quick. So let's let's dive into chapter one here. First of all, I want you to see the holy commission of Jonah. The holy commission in Jonah in the first two verses. Uh, we we know that. Jonah is given instructions by the Lord. And we are all given instructions by the Lord. Instructions to evangelize. Instructions to live a holy life. Instructions to lead our family men uh, to discipline and raise up our children. To be God's light in the world as we proclaim his truth. So many tasks that God has given us here. And he gives Jonah a very specific commission though. And it it serves as an example for all of us seeking to follow the Lord. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Jonah means dove. It means dove and in ancient times doves weren't seen as cute and adorable as they are today. Doves were considered a dumb animal, a senseless animal. And so the name really fits Jonah because we're going to see throughout the book that he's he's dumb, he's senseless. He doesn't seem to even think about what he's doing. And it's quite ironic that his father's name Amittai means faithful. So while his father is called Faithful, Jonah's called Senseless. He's from a, a city called Gath-Hefer, a town in lower Galilee about three miles northeast of Nazareth in the ancient tribal clan of Zebulun, one of the only prophets to come out of that region. 2 Kings 14 tells us that he served as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. So that allows us to place a time frame on Jonah's ministry. Jeroboam II was king of the northern kingdom, and, and Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam would expand the territory to the north. So this puts us in the first half of the 8th century B.C., roughly 760 years before Christ, and Jonah's already going to be called to go out and proclaim repentance to the Gentiles. So it's about 760 B.C. when Jonah gets this commission, and it's a great time of peace and prosperity, even though the northern kingdom had Some very evil kings. Jeroboam in the beginning was very prosperous. The kingdom was very peaceful. Eventually he would be called an evil king. But God had blessed that kingdom for some time and they were very comfortable there. And it says that the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him. And he was probably sleeping. either had uh, God speak to him directly or, or heard this in a vision. And God gave him a word In this case, not to to come and speak to the people. Most prophets in the Bible are recording exactly what God said. So the whole book or the majority of the prophet book will be about what God said. What God said to his people Israel. What God said to another nation. This is different in the sense that we see much of what's going on in Jonah's life and Jonah's struggle. We only have really one line of God's word for Nineveh. And it's not even a whole verse that we'll see later. Out of four chapters, the only word of the Lord that Jonah utters is that short statement of warning against Nineveh. So the word of the Lord here is to be taken of what Jonah should do. Not specifically what Jonah should say, although that's going to be included, but what Jonah should go and do. God is telling him to do something. He's commissioned him for a task and he expects Jonah to obey. Now that one sentence that Jonah will Prophesy is very important to the Lord. It's important enough that he's going to send one of his prophets to accomplish it, to to proclaim that this city should repent or it will be overturned. And it's part of God's plan to save uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Yes, when Christ came, he he brought in many Gentiles and the, the apostles preached that message to Gentiles. We preach that message as Gentiles to Gentiles. But there's hints of it in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. As I looked at this morning in our equipping class, many verses speak of God bringing in all the nations. Not every single person living in the nations, but people from out of those. That Christ died for people in those groups, and that God's going to save them eventually. So he gives the word to Jonah, and here's what he says. Verse 2. We don't know all that God says, but we know this specific command here that he gave. Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. So Jonah's asleep. He receives this. He, he's, he's woken up. And, and the first command is, arise, get up. Get up and go. Get up, out of bed. Get up from your house. And second command, go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. So he's told to get up. Secondly, he's told to go to Nineveh. Nineveh points back to Genesis 10, 11, a city founded by Nimrod. And Nimrod founded many cities after the nations were divided there. And it says that, From the land of Shinar, Nimrod went out into Assyria. He built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, and Kela, major cities in Assyria. The cities on the east bank of the Tigris River, right in the center of the Fertile Crescent. Areas uh, that would be very rich and very wealthy. And not only uh, trade routes would go through there, but the farmland and agriculture made those cities prosperous. And very many people lived in these cities. And they had great walls around them. They were known around the ancient world. Nineveh in Jonah's day was a major city in the Assyrian Empire. It's the most powerful and richest nation in the world at the time. you probably heard of the Babylonians, certainly the Greeks and the Romans. But before all of those, the Assyrians ruled in the eastern world. They ruled most of what we call Turkey today, down to Egypt and across through Babylon and into Persia. They were not only a major nation, they were a ruthless nation in their warfare. And they would go out and conquer lands and slaughter many people. So this city was a great city in Assyria and it had been there as a royal residence since 1100 BC. And even in Jonah's time, although it wasn't the capital, the king would go and reside there because it was the biggest city in his empire. And he would go there and he would rest there and experience much of the year there in Nineveh. Later it would become the capital after Jonah's time and the Babylonians would destroy it in 612 BC. But here God says, go to Nineveh. And he doesn't just say go, but he says it's a great city. Later we'll find out there's 120,000 people at least there by the end of Jonah. And it's a very large city for that day. Today it doesn't sound very big, but that in that day is a very large city. And not only that, not only is it great in number, but it's, it's probably more focused here on the importance of the city. How important it was for the Assyrian Empire. How important it was for trade. How strategic it was in its a geographical placement for the ancient world. It was a great city, and it was important to God. Now, you got to realize this is the only time God ever sends one of His prophets into a foreign country. It's the only time. The Jews were put there by God in Israel, in the land, to be priests, to be priests before Him, and to be a holy kingdom. And they were to live out God's command so that people could see the light of God. They could see truth. They could see holiness and that they would be attracted to God at Jerusalem and the temple. That's Israel's purpose. They weren't to go out into the world like we are in the New Testament as Christians. We go out. They were to build in the land, live out the commands of God. So it's surprising to see a book like this in the Old Testament, a a whole prophetic book designated for evangelism of the Gentiles. That's what makes the, the book really stand out. God sending one of his prophets to preach a message of salvation. Not just to the Gentiles, but to a very evil Gentile city that pretty much ruled the world at that time. So he's to rise, he's to go. And then thirdly, he's to cry out against the city. To cry out against it. To proclaim a message against the city itself. Well, what's that for? Why is that that he has to cry out? It tells us, for their wickedness has come up before me. Their wickedness has been so great that God has to deal with it. He's heard the cries of other people, the Israelites who've been slaughtered by the Assyrians. And the fact that he's created all mankind and the Assyrians are being cruel. They're being vicious. They're being ungodly. They're spreading paganism to a great extent in the ancient world. Their sin has become so great in this, in this way that they treat others that they must be judged for. God is not just going to wink at sin. Going to say, you know, I'll punish the individual, but not the nation. No, God punishes nations and individuals. And God punishes leaders. And God punishes the people who follow those leaders. And their wickedness has become so much that it's time for God to deal with it. We see this throughout the Old Testament. The idea that people groups would have so much sin in their culture and in their nation that God's going to wipe them out. And Jonah's commissioned now to go and to proclaim that message. To proclaim that they're going to be judged and they're going to be overturned. The city itself will be destroyed. Cry out against it. We don't know the specific content of the message until later in the book. But just cry out against it means to tell them how evil they are. That's what we have to do as Christians with the gospel. I mean, you can't just tell somebody you want to have a a blessed life come to Christ. You have to start with the fact that they're sinners. You have to start with the fact that they're sinful and that they're evil in God's sight. And that their sin has come up before the Lord. And that while it might not be as great as the city Nineveh, it's enough to send a person to hell forever. To be crushed like Nineveh, if, if that was to happen, and it did eventually in 612 BC. That's one thing, but to spend eternity in hell, it's much greater. It's much greater, and Jonah has to proclaim the, their repentance, tell them to repent, and we must do a similar thing with our message as we proclaim the gospel. God has commissioned the whole church. This was his commission for Jonah, but today he's commissioned the whole church to take that message out of repentance. And along with repentance comes faith. We're not to think they're really two separate things. You either have repentance or you have faith. And every once in a while, somebody might have both. No, they go together. So when the Bible says repentance, that's assuming that faith is with that. And when the Bible says have faith in God, that's assuming that repentance goes along with that, turning away from sin. He's to go tell them to turn away from their sin, to stop their injustice and turn to the true God. That's what repentance is. Turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. They didn't have the knowledge of Christ then, but we do today. So Jonah was given a commission. But Secondly, let's look at the rebellious flight of Jonah. I mean, this really sets up for the rest of the book. Verses 1 and 2 is not that surprising to us. I mean, we do see the surprise of that he's going to a foreign country, to a Gentile nation. But then verse 3 is a very big surprise. He flees. He flees from God. And as I said, this is what many Christians do today. Even though we're saved, Even though we know the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we want to please God, we flee from God. Sometimes it's for an hour. Sometimes it's for a day. Sometimes weeks. Sometimes months. And some people backslide for years before they're brought back. Verse 3, But Jonah rose up. That's as far as he got in his obedience to God that day. He rose up. God said, Arise up. He rose up. That was the first command God gave. He gave three commands. Arise, go to Nineveh, cry out against it. Jonah rose rose up and that's where his obedience stopped because he rose up to flee to Tarshish. To literally run away is what flee means here. He's running away from the Lord, running away from the commands that God told him to go and do. It's the only instance on record that we have a prophet refusing to carry out the commission God gave him. God's literally speaking to him, not like people today who say they hear from God. No, no, no. God actually is speaking to this prophet and he's just going to run away. He's going to run away. I mean, how more disobedient can you get as a prophet of God to completely abandon what God has told you to do? And he's going to go as far as he can get away to Tarshish, the farthest known geographical point in the Mediterranean Sea. Greek historian Herodotus tells us there's a, there's a city called Tartessus, and it's probably Tarshish here in Hebrew and Tartessus in the Greek, a merchant city on the southwest coast of Spain. So all the way out to the end of the Mediterranean Ocean. He's trying to get away from God. Tarsus is mentioned in the Bible multiple times. It's a distant coastal land of the Sea Peoples, the Phoenicians. And it's known for producing and trading silver, iron, tin, and lead. So it was where the, the Phoenicians would get their metal. and Then they would bring it back to the Middle East and trade it and sell it on these great ships that sailed back and forth. Some believe this Tarsus was Carthage, but I think it's more likely the southwest of Spain, Tartessus. Tyre, Sidon, those are Phoenician, great Phoenician cities that would, would go out and, and pick up items in Tarshish and bring them back and trade back and forth because it was a settlement of theirs, this Phoenician settlement. The point here is it's the opposite direction from which Jonah's supposed to go. He's supposed to go northeast to Nineveh from where he lives and he goes southwest and then gets on a ship to go as far west as he can to completely get away from his mission. He's running from the Lord. He's running from the Lord. I wonder how that's going to go for him. I wonder how that's going to go for him. It's not going to be good. And it never is for anyone who runs from the Lord. He says he went down to Joppa. New Testament, it's called Jaffa with two Fs, but in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it's Joppa. And it's the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he found a ship which was going to Tarshish. So again, the cities mentioned Tarshish. These ships of Tarshish were quite large trading vessels that would go through ports in the Mediterranean region. He says he paid the fare. He paid the fare. Some scholars think he paid for the whole ship, which would be quite expensive. Others say he just paid for himself and a place to sleep and eat on the way. Either way, though, prophet of God's probably not got a lot of money, but he's willing to shell it out to go hide away, get away from God. And he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We have Jonah going down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. In chapters 1 and 2, there's going to be a lot of downward spiral for Jonah. In the Old Testament especially, when you see these words repeated, or phrases repeated, it's trying to draw something out for us. Draw a picture for us. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the hold of the ship. Later, he'll go down into the depths of the sea. He'll go down into the belly of the great fish. It's just down, down, down for Jonah in his sin, in his disobedience, in his rebellion. He's a rebellious, disobedient follower of God. He's backsliding in his faithfulness. And to emphasize it, this verse tells us three times where he's going to Tarshish. You notice that? Three times it says he's going to Tarshish. And, and twice it says that he fled from the presence of the Lord. None of us sin has come up in the presence of the Lord. And now Jonah is going to run away from the presence of the Lord. And it's mentioned twice here. Does he really think, though, he can run and hide from God? I mean, is he that clueless? Has, has sin so clouded his mind that he's forgotten about the omnipresence of God? That God is everywhere and sees everything and knows everything? I don't think he forgot it. I think he just didn't care. That day he just didn't care. He decided that he was going to choose his own path. He, he knew what David had written in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Jonah would have known that, written long before he lived. He would have known his Bible. He would have known there's no place you could truly go to get away from God. That wouldn't stop him from trying. It's like when you know what's right and you know what's wrong according to God, but you just don't care and you decide to go your own way. I can imagine Jonah saying in our modern language, I'm going to exercise some of this free will that everyone else is always talking about. So Lord, find someone else for the job because I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm going to do what I want. And he may have even said, you know, God, I've served you for so long. And I've been your prophet in Israel. And that's one thing, to be your prophet before the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. But I'm not going to Nineveh. Find someone else. I'm getting out of here. But why is he refusing to obey? It won't become perfectly clear to us until chapter 4. But we know that Jonah has an idea of politics at that time. And not only does he have an idea of who the Assyrians are, that they're pagan Gentiles, that they're against Israel and against God, but he also would have known a a prophecy given by Hosea. Hosea lived around the time of Jonah. And Hosea gave this prophecy. The northern kingdom will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim, that's another name for the the northern kingdom, will return to Egypt. They're not literally going to go to Egypt. But they're going to be back in bondage like they were in Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. So that prophecy was a prophecy to the northern kingdom that one day the Assyrians are going to come and take them away, just like they were in bondage in Egypt at one point in their, life, in their history. They're going to be in bondage in Assyria, and they're going to have to eat unclean, unholy food. And they would have hated that. They would have hated that idea that the Assyrians were going to come and conquer them and take them away. So Jonah knows that. He knows they're going to go into exile someday. If God has prophesied it, it's going to happen. The kingdom's going to be destroyed. And God's going to bring it about. And now here's God telling Jonah to go to the major city in Assyria where most of them live and preach a message of repentance. He'd rather not give them an opportunity to repent because he knows what God's probably going to do. He knows what God's probably going to do. And that makes him very angry when it actually happens. And in chapter 4, we learn what Jonah's real problem is with God. Now we have to ask here, is Jonah even a true prophet? I mean, he's rebelling against God. It's not wrong to ask that question. It's not wrong to see a Christian backslide for a long period of time and wonder if they're truly saved. Not because we get to determine that ultimately, but it's, it's right to ask. It's right for church leaders to ask. It's right to ask your friends and family members that you care about. And it's right to ask here, is Jonah a true prophet? Since he is rebelling pretty much the whole book against God. Well, there's only one other mention of Jonah in Scripture, in the Old Testament anyway. We know Jesus mentions him in the New. But that's in 2 Kings 14.25. I referred to it earlier, the prophecy that he gives to Jeroboam. 2 Kings 14.25. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he, God, spoke through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath Hefer. He's called a prophet of God, a true prophet of Yahweh. the, the, The Lord in all caps in your translation means Yahweh, the covenant name of God. He is a true prophet of that God, the God of Israel. And he spoke to Jeroboam and everything he spoke happened. He was glad to be a prophet in Israel. He was glad to be a prophet to his own people. He spoke the message. There was no disobedience there. Everything came about as God had said it would. He was a true prophet. He was a true prophet. But he was now rebelling. He was now running. When God gave him another mission, he would run from it. He would rebel against God. We can't rebel against God's will as believers. I mean, you just shouldn't do it. You you can, literally, you're able to. God has not made us perfect where we never have sinful desires and temptations. Even with the Holy Spirit in us under the new covenant, we still can sin. But we shouldn't. We're going to see what happens to Jonah in the rest of this chapter, in, in chapter 2. And, and even by the end of the book, you're still wondering about Jonah. Is he ever going to repent? Is he ever going to obey God? I think he does because he writes this book, I believe, and that's his sign of repentance. But we should not follow in that example. There's so many warnings in Scripture against leading a rebellious, sinful lifestyle. We just read of it in our Scripture reading today, 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, and Paul's dealing with this issue of church discipline. And the Corinthians thought they could just let sin run amok in their church. Guy brings his stepmom in. He's having an affair with her. No big deal. We're gracious. We're loving. We're not going to enact church discipline. We're going to let this continue. And and Paul writes, I guess, a second letter that's not recorded in Scripture. And then 2 Corinthians comes about, which is really his third letter. And he tells him, look, I hope I wasn't too harsh, but I'm kind of glad I was. Because look what happened. Look what happened. You repented. You repented. You, you did what you were supposed to do. You didn't continue as a church in your rebellion. Because Jesus warns a church in Revelation, if you continue to rebel, if you continue to rebel, I'm going to snuff out your lamp. I'm going to take you out. and That church will no longer exist. And it's the same way for individual believers. We can't rebel and run from God's will. How far do you think you're going to get? How far do we think we're going to get when we rebel against God and when we sin? You think he doesn't see what we're thinking? You think he doesn't know what we're going to do long before we do it? This ought to serve as an example here. And as we read throughout the book, that we can't run from God. We can't rebel against God and expect not to have consequences. doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation. Listen to last week's sermon for that. But it does mean that as a believer, we're called to holiness. We're called to righteousness. And if we just ignore God and do what we want, even for a moment, we're sinning. We need to repent. We need to ask for forgiveness. And he will cleanse us, he says. He's he's faithful and righteous to cleanse us. Well, thirdly, we've already now looked at the Holy Commission, the rebellious flight of Jonah. Let's see what comes about from that. And I've entitled this last one, The Accidental Evangelism of Jonah. It's accidental because he doesn't intend it. In fact, he's against evangelizing Gentiles at all. But by the time we get to the end, he certainly has done it. Of course, God's really done it, but he's used Jonah as the messenger. And Jonah doesn't even realize it. He's doing the very thing that he's running from. And not only in that, but also God is bringing him back to the mission that he's given Jonah. So people get saved here. People repent. Jonah's accidentally being an evangelist that he doesn't want to be. And God also eventually will accomplish bringing Jonah back on mission. Well, the rest, really, you could just say the rest of this chapter, from 4 to 16, is, is about God's sovereignty over man's sin. No matter how much we rebel, no matter how much we want to run from God, God not only is going to bring us back, but He's going to use all that time that we were rebelling for our good and for His good, ultimately. Does not mean we should go in sin so that grace may abound? No, that that's a sin in of itself to think that way, but God will use all things for His glory. Look at verse 4. Accidental evangelism of Jonah starts here in verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he hurled a great wind on the sea. These are hurricane-force winds. I mean, the storm is is so bad, the ship's going to break apart. So this is no small storm. Any storm on the sea is dangerous. A storm on the sea in that day in a little wooden ship compared to the big ships we have today, very dangerous, very dangerous. And notice that God did this. All things come about in God's sovereign plan. But Jonah wants to tell us here that it was the Lord who did this. God is going to use nature here, natural forces, to correct Jonah. There was a great storm on the sea. A storm caused by this great wind that God had hurled upon the sea. And it was such a strong wind so that the ship was about to break up. Literally, the ship thought it would be broken up. He's personifying even the ship here in the original Hebrew. The ship thinks it's going to break up. In contrast to Jonah here, who's running from God and disobeying God, the wind obeys God, the sea obeys God, even the ship. The ship is tuned in to the Lord's purposes for it, if we wanted to speak like that. God will use providential events. If we don't listen to him, if we don't listen to his word, if we throw the Bible aside, that doesn't mean God is not there. He's not just the God of special revelation, the Bible, but he's also the God of natural revelation. And he will get through to us. Not not by writing a message in the sky, not by writing a message in the sand, but causing events in our life to put pressure on us. It's God's providence. He's, he's doing things in our life to put pressure on us to drive us back to him. It's called God's discipline in Hebrews 12. God's discipline. Things will happen to us because we are sinning. That can't happen to believers, can it? Can that happen to believers? That God would discipline you after you're justified? That's what Hebrews 12 talks about, but that's certainly what's happening with Jonah here. God's going to use nature to put pressure on him, a lot of pressure, in fact. So much so that he almost dies by the time we get into chapter 2. If we're going to ignore Scripture, if we're going to ignore the Spirit within us, then God's going to find other ways to convict us of our sin. He'll use other people. He'll he'll use uh, the pressure from a cataclysmic event. He'll use financial pressure. He'll use all kinds of methods, of course. He's God. He wants what's good for us. He wants what's good and glorifying for Him. Verse 5, Then the sailors became afraid. They became afraid, and every man cried to his God. These are expert sailors. They would have known a, a normal storm, even a serious storm, but this is a very serious, great storm. And they are very much afraid. They are very frightened. You see this over and over in the passages. They're very frightened. They knew that this was no ordinary tempest. And they're going to be seized with terror now. Notice what they do. They start to throw. Literally, they hurl their cargo overboard. God hurled the great wind on the sea. They're going to hurl their cargo overboard, which is in the ship, to lighten it for them. They know how serious it is. They're going to die, and they're willing to get rid of their merchandise. It's like throwing money overboard just to lighten the load. They must have been fearful for their life because they're throwing the, the cargo that they're going to sell for money when they get to Tarshish, right, overboard. They're willing to do anything so they don't perish. They're scared. They're scared of whatever God is bringing this about. They don't know yet who it is, but they're scared. Sometimes as followers of God, we're not scared at all of God. We don't have a, enough fear of Him in a reverent way. And look at the contrast. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and laid down and fallen asleep. He is living his name out here. He is senseless. He could care less. He really doesn't care at all. When, when, when Jonah's around Gentiles, he says, I don't want to be around them. I'm going to sleep. And he's got such a false sense of security that he can go down there and sleep in a deep sleep in the middle of a hurricane-force wind and storm and waves. He's in a deep sleep, a sound sleep. Down in the bottom of the ship. False sense of security. He thinks he's gotten away from God. Now he can go to sleep. You know, Now he can rest. You know, when you're turning something over in your mind and you're worried about what God's going to do and you're convicted sometimes, but not at other times. And then you have a peace like you've escaped that. And then suddenly God's going to bring about a discipline in your life. And you say, yeah, God didn't forget. That's what's going to happen to Jonah. He's He thinks everything's fine. He goes to sleep, deep sleep. So the captain approached him and says, how is it that you are sleeping? Literally, what are you doing? What are you doing sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we will not perish. Of all the false pagan gods out there, they don't know which God's doing this. You see, in ancient times, they knew when things like this happened, it has to be a, a thing from the heavens, a thing from a God. Today, we write it off to science. Science, science, not God. God couldn't be doing anything. God couldn't be doing anything. Every bad, calamitous thing that happens in the world today, even Christians don't want to say God had a hand in it. But he did, and he does. And so they are asking him, hey, one more person praying to their God can't hurt. Better chance they they might have of reaching the right God and and fixing this problem. But what a a shame here that a pagan had to call Jonah, a prophet of God, to pray. We don't see that he ever prayed either. He's told to pray. We don't have a record that he actually prays. And we have a pagan reminding him to pray to his God. Jonah doesn't want to pray. He doesn't want to talk to God. He's running from God, remember? And, And also the captain's words now, they should have sounded strangely familiar to Jonah. Because look what he says. Get up. What did God say? Get up. And then he says, cry out. Cry out to your God. God told Jonah to get up and cry out to Nineveh. So Jonah can't escape God in the natural world with all these things happening. He he can't escape God with this pagan telling him to pray and using words that God had just given to Jonah as his commission. Get up. Cry out. Can he get anywhere that he is away from God. No, he, he's always before God. If God doesn't get our attention with providential events in our lives, so he'll use pagan unbelievers to recall the truth to mind. Sometimes pagans speak more truth to us than some of the teachers out there in the Christianity. It's not as if they're teaching us the Bible, but they just speak general truths that we then later are convicted in our own hearts that we've sinned. 7. Verse 7, each man says to his mate. So they've, they've gotten John up. They've told him to pray. He doesn't pray as far as we know. Now they go to the next step. Let's cast lots so we can learn who's, on whose account this calamity, literally the word is wickedness, has struck us. In ancient times, wickedness is either an evil sin that you did or just a, a calamitous event that came upon people. Because calamitous events come upon people whose sin was the idea. And so they were connected it's the same hebrew word the sailors want to discover which god has been offended and they want to find a, a way to appease this god now god often worked through casting of lots in the old testament you got the urim and the Thummim, and they would, high priest would pull those out of his garments and whatever that was he would use them to determine god's will proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the lord so in the old testament we see this practice but this is, it's not a practice we should do today as Christians. You want to figure out something that the Lord is telling you. You don't need to cast lots. Don't roll dice. Draw straws. You can do that for your kids' chores. You can do that for other things. But there's no use to use this method anymore to determine the Lord's will. Because after Pentecost, believers have the Holy Spirit. And we see no mention of casting lots. The last time we see it is when they're determining uh, who will replace Judas in Acts. Then the Holy Spirit comes. And there's... Nothing about casting lots. Because the Spirit guides us today. The Spirit's in us. He's sufficient. He guides us. And He guides us according to the Word of God. So don't say, I'm going to go cast lots to find out what God's will is for me. He's told you in the book. And He'll use the Spirit to point you back to that and to make wise decisions in your life. So they cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah. and It's quite ironic. Jonah had been sent to Nineveh to confront pagans with their wickedness. But he runs away And now he's brought calamity, literally wickedness, down upon himself and the pagan sailors. He didn't want to go tell them to repent of the wickedness in Nineveh. And yet what's he done? He's brought these wicked things, these calamitous events, upon himself and all these men. And they said, tell us now. The lot's fallen on you. Tell us. On whose account has this calamity struck us? So they already know it's Jonah. The lot's fallen on him. Now admit it, Jonah. Just confess. What have you done? Why is this happening? What is your occupation? Jonah never answers what his occupation is, by the way. Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? What's your mission, Jonah? He doesn't answer. He does tell him the people that he comes from, and that's enough. But he doesn't answer what his mission is, what his occupation is. Because if he did, he'd have to admit that he's a prophet called to go to Nineveh. Now he'd have to say that out loud. That would be convicting. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to continue running from the Lord. He still thinks he's fine. He still thinks he's safe. So they ask him, who is he? What's his mission? He doesn't answer completely. Once again, God is is providentially confronting him with the painful reality of his disobedience. Here's these pagans. Pray to your God. Arise. Cry out. Pray. What's your mission? What's your occupation? Different ways to confront Jonah's sin. And he says, I'm a Hebrew, which to to them... They knew who the Hebrews were. They knew that it was a sufficient answer to tell them, uh, answer to where he's from, who his people are, what his country is. And then closest thing probably that he tells to a lie here, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. He says he fears the Lord God. Now, it also means worship. That's included in fear. But he's not shown much fear at this time for the Lord God of heaven. And it's the one who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, I I worship and fear the true God who created everything. Not some puny local household gods that they worship. This is the one true God, the one who made everything, including this ocean that we're on, including the wind that's hurling the waves around. That God is the one that I fear and worship. But he's not consistent with what he says. I mean, if he feared God so much, then why is he running away? Why is he running away from God if he truly feared him? Like so many today, his theology is great. He could teach a theology class on God, but living it out, very difficult for him. It seems to make no difference in his actions that he fears God. He says he fears God, but is that really true? Not at this moment in his life. And then verse 10, the men became extremely frightened. It's just getting worse for them. They're getting more scared because they found out whose fault it is. And they found out that the God that this man fears is the one true God who's made everything. They know right away that that God has brought this calamity upon them. That God is doing this. And they don't know what to do. They became extremely frightened. And Jonah doesn't realize, as he tells them who God is, they're starting to fear the one true God. They've now got knowledge of who he is. They know his name. It's not just God in general, but Yahweh, God of heaven. So they know His his covenant name. God's just kind of a general term for any supreme being, but, but Yahweh, Lord, personal God of Israel, who saves, who loves, who has compassion. And they say, how could you do this? How could you do this? How could you bring this upon us? What have we done to you, Jonah? What, how could you run from God? Because he says, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. At some previous point, he just said, I'm running from my God. Went down and went to sleep. And now they're remembering that and they say, oh yeah, we remember now. Now that we know who your God is and we remember that you're running from him, how could you do this? How could you do this? This extremely frightened group of sailors realized that the storm proclaimed the awesome power of God better than Jonah could. He doesn't want to preach to the Gentiles. He's going to remain quiet. He's going to go in the ship. He's not going to go to Nineveh. And yet here's a storm that proclaims the awesome power of God more than Jonah does. They were more alarmed by Jonah's disobedience than Jonah was himself. Jonah could care less. He was down in the ship asleep. But these men, extremely frightened, extremely afraid. What a rebuke this is to Jonah. What a rebuke. Sometimes when people first get saved, it's kind of a rebuke to those who have been Christians a while. We get comfortable. We've, We've sort of been living with some of our sins and living in certain patterns, bad habits, lazy not serving in places we should serve, not evangelizing when we should. And you meet a new believer, and we get to do this a lot with our membership interviews. They're extremely excited, and they're on fire for the Lord. And it's convicting. They want answers. I mean, they want to study the Bible, and they just want to spend all the time listening to sermons and reading the Bible and reading good books and serving the Lord. Where can I do this, and where can I do that? These men, I believe, are starting to have a heart change. The sailors feared God here more than Jonah. And even though Jonah does not want Gentiles to be saved, he can't stop God from making him a prophet. He is a prophet of God, and now he's speaking more than he realized as he tells him God's name and what God has done. He's created all things. And that's where we start with the gospel, really. In our culture today, you can't even even just talk about Jesus. You've got to back up. We're talking about God and the the belief in the true God, who, who is the creator of all things. Not that we evolved from nothing, but that God created out of nothing he created us in the world and he's he's commanded us to obey and we haven't and we've fallen into sin and we continue to fall into sin and we need a savior so the first thing they realized they must fear this god so they asked him what should we do what should we do that the sea may become calm i mean this is the god you're running away from you know him we we don't we just heard of him you've done this sin what should we do This storm's getting worse. I mean, the idea is it just continues and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. They're about to die. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to do to please your God, the one who created all things and is all powerful. Just tell us. It makes me think of the Philippian jailer. Just just tell us, Paul, what we should do to be saved. And he says to them, something they don't want to hear, pick me up and throw me, hurl me, literally hurl me into the sea. And the sea will become calm, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. I mean, what a repentant guy, right? It's my fault. Just throw me overboard. Not even saying he's sorry, not repenting. He knows. He knows that his disobedience has brought this on, and, and if they want to stop the storm, they've got to get rid of him. And he's not being noble here, he's not giving himself up for their benefit. I don't think that's it. Some some people read that into here. I think he's just saying, okay, well, if you won't let me go to Tarshish, God, then just throw me over and I'll die. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. If I can't go to Tarshish, then just let me die. I'm not going to Nineveh. Find someone else. I'll even die in the sea and drown because hardly anybody knew how to swim back then. I'll just drown. I'll just drown because even if you knew how to swim, you've got these big waves coming over that would take you under. It's not the right response. It's not the right response for him to say, just kill me now. Just throw me over. Let God judge me with my death. The right response would have been to repent and agree to go to Nineveh right there. That's what we would hope to see here. That's what we would hopefully do if we were in that situation. But I don't know. It's hard sometimes to know what we would do. You know, we think we're strong. Jonah was a true prophet of God and look how he disobeys. He had heard the actual audible voice of God. And this is this is it. He just, throw me into the ocean. The men aren't going to do that. I mean, if, if they've already made Jonah's God mad, what do you think throwing Jonah, a prophet of God, into the ocean is going to do? It's going to make him more mad. So what do they do? They, they row desperately. Literally, the, the Hebrew word is they dug in with their oars. I mean, they just dug in hard to row. Let's get out of the storm. Let's get back to the land. We've got to get back. It says they return, they wanted to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. It just continues raging, this storm does. They can't kill him by throwing him overboard. They'll make the God too angry of his. Let's just get him back to land so he can go about his own way. But it doesn't work. They're getting nowhere. Then they call upon the Lord again. And they say, we earnestly pray. Look at this prayer here. We earnestly pray. Oh Yahweh, Lord, we earnestly pray. Do not let us perish On the account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us. These pagan guys know more than most of pagan America that kills innocent babies every day. Because under the Noahic covenant, which everybody's an offspring of Noah, they already knew this, but God reaffirmed it in the Noahic covenant that it's wrong to take a life. That it's wrong to murder someone. And if they're going to throw Jonah over, that's killing him. And they, they asked for forgiveness. He's a prophet. He's told us to do this. And of course, they don't know he's a prophet, but he's told us to do this. And we're scared. You don't, you don't take an innocent life. Don't put this innocent blood on us. They had more concern for one life than Jonah had for 120,000 lives in Nineveh. Jonah, 120,000 in Nineveh. He doesn't even care if they perish. Let God destroy the city. This group of sailors, they care about one life. Just one. They have more concern for him than he does for Nineveh. And they go on with this great prayer. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. This is high theology being lived out in their prayers. Many Christians don't actually believe and pray like this. You are sovereign. You do exactly as you please. You do whatever you want. You've already done whatever you want, they're saying. We've got your mercy, Lord. We're not in a position to demand anything from you. We're not going to cry out to you and tell you what to do. We're here at your mercy and you've done whatever you please. And if we believe this man, we've got to do as he tells us. This is your will. It reminds me of the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. Your will be done. And then they picked Jonah up and they threw him. Literally, they hurled him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. There's a lot of throwing going on here, if you haven't noticed. A lot of hurling back and forth, right? In verse 4, God hurls a great wind. Then the man hurled the cargo overboard. Then Jonah tells them in 12 to hurl him overboard. Then in 15, they actually pick him up and hurl him into the sea. This is action-packed here. A lot of throwing things around, and it's all according to God's will. The sea immediately stops. They throw him overboard. The sea immediately stops. It's raging. It's done. It's calm. It reminds us of Christ when he stopped the, the storming sea. And what they do? Do they go about their way? Do they go back to their pagan ways? You see how he's accidentally evangelizing him? He doesn't even realize it. He doesn't want to go to the Gentiles. Look at verse 16. And the men feared Yahweh, the Lord, greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to him. And they made vows. They feared God more than Jonah at this point. Even though Jonah doesn't want to go to the Gentiles so that Gentiles can be saved, look what's happened. I believe these men have been saved. They've been saved. They, they, they have been evangelized without Jonah even realizing it. Because they knew enough about the ancient world and how things worked. That there must be a God doing this. And as soon as he gave them the name of that God, they feared him. And now they're worshiping him because they have proof of it with the calming of the storm. Jonah says he fears God, but he acts in a way that's inconsistent. The sailors, who have just learned about the God just a few minutes before this, what do they do? They have genuine fear. They have genuine worship. Were they truly converted, or is this just a temporary repentance? Were they actually converted? Well, they feared Yahweh, the personal name of God? Not just any God, but they feared the one true God. It says they prayed to him. They made sacrifices to him. Then they made vows to him. And this is more fruit than we see from Jonah and the whole book of Jonah. And we know he's a true prophet of God. Just disobedient. We see no good fruit, really, from Jonah. In chapter 3, he does obey and go to Nineveh, but he even complains about that later. These men have shown more good fruit than Jonah. And what they do matches what Jonah says when he repents temporarily. And Chapter two, look at chapter two, verse ten. Jonah is expressing his, his faith in the same way that they do. But two nine, sorry, two nine in our English Bible, but I will sacrifice to you, Jonah says. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He he talks about sacrificing to God as a show of faithfulness. He talks about making vows to God. What these pagan sailors are doing are the same thing that Jonah talks about later when he repents in the fish's belly. They've met the living God. They've met the true God, and now they're worshiping God. They probably did it right there on the ship. Maybe they got to land and built an altar and sacrificed. Either way, though, they truly worshipped God. So Jonah was commissioned. Jonah, he disobeys and he's rebellious. But before he even gets to Nineveh, he's already accidentally evangelizing Gentiles. And they get saved. But again, our lesson for today is that we should not run from God's will. We should not run from God's will. I like what Charles Spurgeon has to say in his little um, morning and evening on this passage. Christians do not play the Jonah. Unless you wish to have all the waves and the billows rolling over your head. You'll find in the long run that it's far harder to shun the work and will of God than to at once yield yourself to it. Jonah lost time for he had to go to Nineveh after all. It's hard to contend with God. Let us yield ourselves at once. Stop wasting time and resisting God. Stop sinning. Stop running from God. God's gracious to forgive. He's gracious to Jonah. I mean, look how he's working to bring Jonah back. He doesn't kill Jonah. He he brings him back to accomplish the mission that he's given him. So you're going to find in the long run that it's far harder to resist God than it is to just obey and accept his will. I'll close with one New Testament connection. Jonah went down to Jaffa to run away from God. And in the New Testament, Peter ends up, Peter the apostle ends up in Jaffa, the same city. And in Acts 9 and 10, he's called to go to Cornelius, a Gentile household, and he doesn't want to go because they're going to eat unclean food, and he's a Jew, and how does he How does he eat with them? How does he go into their house? So he puts up a bit of resistance, and then God gives him this vision of how he can now eat, and all things are clean, and Peter obeys. Opposite from Jonah. Peter's the, the reverse Jonah. He obeys, and he goes and preaches the gospel, and Cornelius and his household is converted. And the Gentiles are saved. And the gospel goes out now to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. So let's live more like Peter than Jonah. Let's obey and not run from the Lord's will. Lord, we ask that you would do this in our hearts, that you would make us desire your will. Let us do your will. Let us know your word so well that we want to accomplish your desires. Let us feed ourselves upon your commands, upon your word, so that we want to obey your statutes. We want to live out those ordinances. It's a way of sanctification, Lord. You've given it to believers for a purpose. Let us make use of them. We pray that we might do this in Jesus' name. Amen.